everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. This is episode, by our count, 228 of the podcast. We are here with Daniel Tut, who is the host of the Emancipations podcast and author of upcoming How to Read Like a Parasite on Why the Left Got High on Nietzsche. Daniel, welcome to the show. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, man. Well, it's great to be here. I like how you say on on our count. I mean, it's kind of like when you get older, you don't you forget how old you are. Like maybe mm. maybe there's 226 episodes. <laughs> maybe there's more. Maybe there's less. <laughs> we managed to. It's not as bad as the numerical system that Varn and I use, which is now up to nine separate mini series. Each of them having like point one, point two, point three, point four, point five, six, seven, and so on. But then sometimes like the mini series overlap with each other, so we'll be doing nine, and then we'll go back to like four or five. At least with the antifada thing, we have it so that there's like a gray area, but what about what an official episode is? But I think about two hundred and twenty-eight. Regardless, everybody, welcome, Daniel. How are you doing on this uh, Sunday evening? Man, I'm good. I mean, you know, my my heart is with the suffering of Gaza and the the whole situation unfolding there. And it's hard to think about much else. As we were saying a moment ago, you know, being able to sort of, you know, go into the cave of Marxist theory, in this case, Engelsian theory, yeah, right. has, um, has helped uh, to some extent. But, you know, just um, very concerned about that issue, but also stoked to be here. Um, things are good, man. If life is good. Family's good. Uh, you know, I'm a big Angles guy, so I feel happy that you invited me because I feel like Angles is this mis misunderstood figure, like by a lot of people, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think maybe including um by myself. You know, this is the first the first real, you know, deep dive I've taken into the actual life of Angles. I knew the outlines um of what he did how he lived the contradictions of his existence of course being a uh, cotton baron or at least a cotton manager at a family firm himself uh, but also being obviously one of the leading lights of international socialism in the 19th century a man who somehow later on in life managed to find himself one of the founders of uh, socialist feminism theoretically and historically while also being a famous carouser and womanizer uh a man who was deeply deeply prussian uh but ended up living the majority of his life in uh in merry old england uh and somebody who as the of course i didn't even mention this yet we both read uh marx's general the revolutionary life of frederick engels by tristam hunt uh for this uh, but the you know the subtitle of the book makes clear what the thesis of it is of course which is that, or, or I should say the title, which is that uh, Engels, early on in his life, in his 20s, makes the decision to become second fiddle to Karl Marx, who he considered a bona fide genius, and he himself uh, merely a great thinker and contributor to things. But this book makes a great case, and I think it's undoubtedly true that Marx could not have done what he had done without Engels. And this also tries to, I think, pull back uh, at least since the 1920s, certainly since the 1960s or 1970s, uh, this sense that Engelsism, this like vulgarization, 
popularization and uh, and many argue bastardization of Marx's pure theory uh, was Engels' fault. Uh, towards the end of Marx's life, as he was losing his faculties uh, through Engels' editing uh, and production of uh, Capital uh, Volumes 2 and 3, and of course in his political work, which he goes on over a decade after Marx dies, helping to found, say, the Second International. So that's a very long-winded prelude to welcoming everybody to this episode and uh, to this discussion that Daniel and I are going to have about this book, and I think some other works that you've read as an Engelsian you're going to kind of help expand upon, you know, our meager knowledge of the of the revolutionary life of Engels. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You say as an Engelsian, because I, mean, I think my sense is that the, the the sort of impulse there is that one has to choose between Marx and Engels, and so I think the question for me is like, is is that true? Is it is it really like that? Um, or did Marx see it that way? Did Engels see it that way? And I think. You know, looking at the biographical, the kind of, let's say, the intellectual biography might be one way to think about it, which, you know, biography alone kind of runs a risk of being hagiographic, kind of like celebration of this great, it's very romantic, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that the um, the Hunt bio, Marx's general, has a bit of that, um, but it is likely one of the first biographies of Frederick Engels, which is beyond just these hagiographic accounts. Um, we got to keep in mind, I mean, you know, Engels was uh, one of the most highly educated men of his time. Um, he was in and out of German universities um, ever since he graduated from high school. And that was actually um, part of the interesting context that a thinker like Lukács um, helped me understand about the histories. Lukács also sort of wrote these great, um, Georg Lukács, the Marxist philosopher, wrote a great like um, analysis of European philosophy. And one of the things that happens prior to 1848 and after, as the capitalist system falls into crisis, is that the philosophical and intellectual community also fell into crisis. And so you had the rise of crazy irrationalist uh, philosophies emerged within bourgeois philosophy. You had um, the aristocracy starting to sort of usurp the Hegelian hegemony within the academy. And the Hegelian worldview was sort of this wildly comprehensive account of like social progress and history. It kind of brought uh, this sort of grand synthesis of academic life it gave it gave the academic vocation a profound purpose mm-hmm. but of course um the kind of contradictions of capitalist life prevented the academy from truly fulfilling the hegelian calling and this is why you have this sort of um early on like right after high school angles basically uh jumps into a seminar uh, led by Schelling. And Schelling is, who is Schelling? He's a very important philosopher in his own right, but he was literally brought in by, like, aristocratic class to push against uh, Hegelian, uh, the the advancement of this more progressive Hegelian thought. And so uh, Engels, one of his first texts was actually a publication, which was actually later posthumously published, of his notes in this seminar. And so... um, it's it's very it's very interesting because Engels' life is 
there's this there's this this quote of Marx, which is that um, communism is this sort of notion of hunting in the morning, fishing in the afternoon, being a critic at night, having this kind of um, flexibility of one's um, labor positions, having mm. some degree of autonomy. And perhaps the irony is that Engels always inhabited that to some extent, even though um, he had to serve as a manager of the Ehrman and Engels mill uh, for 40 years. And when I say he had to, it was sort of a conscious choice so that he could bankroll the Marx project and so that Marx could finish capital. But he was not only bankrolling Marx, he was also, according to the Hunt biography, he was bankrolling other figures within the global European international socialist movement. How was he able to do that? One of the things we learn is that Engels was pulling in a passive income. Just, I think he got 7% of the total profits annually of the mill, which amounted in today's standards, Hunt did the math, to over 100000 just in passive income, which didn't mm. include his salary. His salary was probably, by comparative you know, contemporary standards, I don't know, let's say on the order magnitude of 150 to 200000 maybe more. So he was therefore able to bankroll the Marxes, and Hunt shows that he was able to bankroll the Marxes in a lavish way. Yeah. And that, yeah, yeah, they weren't, it wasn't just bare living. There was some bare living, when they first make it from the continent, when they're expelled from um, Belgium and come to London. Uh, but you're right, very quickly, um, Engels becomes the primary benefactor of Marx. Uh, and not simply that, too. He, he keeps Marx in a, uh, in a state of, uh, well, I wouldn't say splendor, but middle class respectability, let's call it, befitting a uh, philosopher, befitting a, um, somebody with their doctorate from a from a, a german university and i think it's important to add too because there are people who say that engels was merely a financer of uh of capital he also the the postal system there's a great little easter egg in there the postal system as the two of them in the 1850s and 1860s and 1870s are uh engels living in manchester and marx in london the postal system was rising to the point where you could send a uh, letter in the morning and get one in the afternoon and so there's this constant constant back and forth and correspondence between the two as engels not only helps marx to to hone his theory but also gives him a tremendous amount of actual raw statistical data on the goings-on of the cotton industry and importantly to the social conditions of uh of the factories it's of themselves and um you know a, a sort of like analysis of the social relations let's say something that without which marx never could have had capital be more than just a dry economic text or one that's, you know, on the world of abstractions instead of being this incredible document that combines so many different, you know, faculties. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think Engels, I mean, the text that he is most known for are really two, socialism, utopian, and scientific, the anti-during, but f the condition of the working class in England is his first, his first text, which he really, really creates before he meets Marx. Mm. And... It's a very interesting story because he basically um, lives this double life. This is kind of the interesting thing about Engels. I mean, even if we think about how to place Engels in today's standards, because I just gave a sense of like 
the kind of income he's pulling in, but he's this um, kind of bohemian um, philosopher from a conservative Calvinist family, and he he but but he's always had this sort of rebellious spirit. He starts off as a young man as a poet, and um, actually has this as really, does Marx as does Marx. He has this beautiful poem uh, called Florida. Um, which is actually about like Native Americans, mm. and uh, I don't know if you saw that in there. It's really moving. Actually, mm. he's like a decent poet. Um, uh, but I mean, he obviously didn't see himself as a decent poet, so he gave it up <laughs> rather quickly. Um, Marx, who is very much not a decent poet at all, right? And we we know that um, he converts to communism. And I say convert, um, it's kind of strange to say that given that Marx and Engels and communism, as we know it, is has a strident critique of religion, but he converts to communism at 22 from a gentleman called Moses Hess. And Moses Hess was this uh, uh, prolific Jewish um, uh, philosopher of communism who was basically making this argument that the working class is kind of a sacred entity. Right, that it's this kind of so he's he's reading Hess, he's reading the life of Jesus by David Friedrich Strauss, which is a hugely significant text for the kind of materialist atheist turn within um, Christianity. He's reading Feuerbach, who's the kind of most radical reader of Hegel, as the European university system is disintegrating, as I mentioned. So, for example, most of the most prominent philosophers actually don't have university posts. Like Schopenhauer was one of the early ones to innovate this. He, and so did Nietzsche. They refused to be a part of the university because of its decadence, because of its crisis, because of its kind of um, censorship. I mean, Marx and Engels um, met in Brussels in part because so many places were censoring the socialist and communist movements at the time which is why the first organization that they, um, that they joined, the Communist League, um, was a secretive organization, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, of course, that, that notion of secrecy is important in history of socialism because it really starts with Blanquism, which coming out of the French Revolution, you have this kind of notion that revolutionary activity must actually be um, conspiratorial, it must um, take on this um, kind of refusal. Even there's a big debate that the Communist League folks have with folks like Hess, with folks like Willem Waitling, who probably was the biggest preacher mm-hmm. of this more kind of quasi-religious version of socialism. Where true the, socialism, as it went by. Right, in Communist Manifesto, they call it true socialism. And these, you know, there's a great story once where Marx was brought to Waitling, um, where people were kind of, force them to have a debate because Will and Waitling was like, well, actually the working class doesn't really need your fancy bourgeois education. And, um, what, what's needed is this kind of blunkiest, um, agitation such that when an insurrectionary moment, when a, when some agitation emerges, that will be sufficient. People will fall in line precisely because they kind of had this transitive theory of immiseration. So like mm. immiseration produces the kind of knowledge that's adequate for its own liberation. There doesn't need to be any supplement to that. Mm. And I think Marx emerges as a figure who says that there does, right? And this 
This is an interesting point. I think you could actually look at philosophically as like Marx's touchstone in broadly speaking, the enlightenment kind of like, well, reason, like actually we mm. need, we need a program. We do need to have a party that educates and organizes and so on. And that works even, I would say, um, and this is a big question that I think will obviously oscillate is this question about the centrality of the working class, because one of the arguments was can that with Waitling and, and Marx, one was education, but the other one was, um, can a bourgeois, somebody from a bourgeois background, uh, lead a working class movement. And obviously Marx and Engels are, yeah. <laughs> you know, it would be tough for Engels to uh, argue that. <laughs> and Marx for that matter. Too. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, Marx and Engels do develop the line, um, that there does need to be the centrality of the organization of the working class unto itself, but leadership still nonetheless can, um, doesn't, doesn't have to be solely housed within the working class to cut a long and complicated story short. But I will add that that, and this is something we can discuss that debate about working class emancipation obviously changes based on the crises of the system. So 1848 delivers a new framework of understanding the Paris commune of 1871 totally reshuffles the understanding there. And then even much later, um, as socialism becomes much more reformist and liberalism takes on socialism, by the time of 1891, we see angles, and here I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but just to give you a full sense of it, um, Marx is dead by this point, and Engels basically tra uh, publishes for the first time some critiques that Marx had on how communism should interact within the parliamentary system. Mm. And this, according to Hunt and according to Lesha Kolakowski and many others, means meant that what Engels did at that moment was open up Pandora's box. Because what he did was he sanctioned the SPD, the largest socialist party in Germany, which by numbers was like, I think, four times larger than France or Britain. So it was the center of European socialism. What Engels did in 1891 was basically give the blessing to Kautsky, Bernstein, um, Liebknecht and others for their, pro their party program to basically qualify as Marxist. Mm, mm. If that makes yeah, sense. The imprimatur. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that's actually what Engels in his late years after Marx is gone he is the living embodiment of authenticity of orthodoxy. So, mm -hmm. and we can, we can talk all about that, but even as he, in his old age is, um, breaking from orthodoxy in many cases, um, we'll get to that as we get towards the end of this. But one of the things that I thought were fascinating about this book and really, I think damning for, um, you know, the sort of, tendency of uh, self-described Marxists to take uh, various different pronouncements, let's say, in or out of context uh, and present them as holy writ. If you were to um, to read, or at least in the in the political in the political realm, if you were to read uh, the Communist Manifesto versus listening to uh, the correspondence between, say, August Bebel or Edward Bernstein, 
and uh, angles in the 1890s. Uh, it seems like night or day. And it gives us pause. And this book does give you pause before you, um, you start to ascribe too much to some sort of like platonic ideal of Marxism or even some platonic ideal of Engelsism. There's the, there's the theory and the theory is prone to change and softening and in some cases hardening through the decades. But so too is the, political project and the methods and the tactics and strategies open to change through as as the 19th century goes on and as Marx and Engels uh, live their lives and change and as the political opportunities in, say, democracy in Germany change radically, of course, between in, this, in the subsequent decades. And therefore, they're thinking differently about how the socialist struggle might relate to various different discrete and concrete, not just uh, political policies, uh, and situations, but also the actual development of capitalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see this even right as Capital is published. Just to give you a sense of Engels, the propagandist, he coordinated, according to the Hunt biography, I think it was like a dozen reviews, like literally just by calling people, call, like sending letters, whatever, like getting people like, hey, review this book in all the top publications. Like Engels steered all of that. And what Engels was trying to basically put forward is that here we have before us a science of political economy that has uncovered truths about the generation of surplus value that bourgeois economists heretofore have never discovered. And so Engels is using that and he's gauging that as the means by which socialism under the kind of Marxist um, authority of, of theory um, can both radicalize workers, but also influence intellectuals. And I think one of the things we, I think, see about what Marxism means in this in Engels's life is that Marxism almost can be understood as an imminent critique of socialist intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And Engels himself is like that, right? I mean, it's interesting that all of the leading lights of what would become international socialism were converted to the Marxist orientation by reading Anti-During and Dialectics of Nature. Yes. Yes, Capital, but you, you it's not fair to say that it was Capital because Capital itself wasn't presented in its fullness as we experience it today because it was an incomplete project, right? The Anti-During and Engels' um, pamphlets, which typically were kind of responses to things that were happening in the case of During, it's a response to this anti-Semitic socialist philosopher who's taking on Marx directly. And Marx is basically like alive. He's older, but he's like, I don't have time to deal with this guy. Mm -hmm. He's super vulgar. But the problem is, is that all these other socialist intellectuals are really listening to him. And so Engels steps up. And he's like, I'm going to write a systematic critique and rebuke of the entirety of his conception of socialism. And in so doing, what Engels basically did was provide a kind of comprehensive set of claims and statements about what Marxism thinks about things from culture, philosophy, art, aesthetics, like this broad thing. Like He sort of plants the seed of conceiving of Marxism as this total intellectual enterprise, right? Mm. Right? And obviously you see how this is exactly what the Bolsheviks will adopt. And Mao, will, I mean, you see what I mean? And, and this is actually why, I mean, I think Hunt makes a beautiful point. 
that um, bullshit, like Russian socialism, Russian communism under Plekhanov, the foundation of it owes its uh, raison d'etre to Plekhanov's confrontation with dialectics of nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dialectics of nature. Uh, tell people a little bit about dialectics of nature. We're going to get into, I think, one of your hobby horses, which is a critique of uh, what you're referring to, what you were just referring to, which some have called, uh, you know, Michael Heinrich, for example, and others, and Moisha Postone have called worldview Marxism. This idea of a totalizing systemic theory that essentially uh, takes the place of not just all the other soft sciences and analyses of society, but can also do what, say, physics does, analysis of nature, analysis of the natural world. And it's something that comes in for a lot of um, opprobrium, I think rightly, uh, certainly as the 20th century goes on. And as you said, is tied to a whole bunch of um, dogmatisms, I think, that in their whole kind of are a big part of what the caricature of the monolith of Soviet life and Soviet politics and Soviet culture were, which is this kind of overweening, weaning, overarching uh, conformity of thought and thinking. And so the question is, how much is Engels dialectic of nature uh, responsible for that as he is trying to take the method, right? The method that Marx and Engels had together discovered and apply it in a Hegelian fashion to something that he was not an expert at. Right, right, right. Yes. I mean, let's, I think one way to answer this question is to go back to Marx and Engels' early confrontation with um, Ludwig Feuerbach, this prominent left-wing Hegelian philosopher who has this kind of theological understanding of Hegelianism, because at the time, you know, Hegel is also somebody who's going to be making intellectual interventions across the entirety of human knowledge, right? So the question is sort of, is Marxism an ism that also warrants commentary and taking positions <laughs> on things within physics, within biology, right? Uh, art, literature like this whole like what are the limits of and and you know what i what i think we should be careful with here and i'll get to what dialectics of like its basic summary in a second but it's like i'm not sure that see what marx and engels when they were taking on forbach what they were realizing because one of engels later texts he basically writes this thing called ludwig forbach and the end of classical german philosophy which is a reflection on the legacy of Feuerbach and, and a revisitation of Marx and Engels' early little text called Theses on Feuerbach, which is a very famous intervention. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with it. Mm -hmm. um, you get this um, very important kind of maxim of Marxism, if there is a maxim of Marxism, which that philosophers have only interpreted the world when the task is to change it, right? kind of bringing the Feuerbachian system to a point at which uh, it's not capable of uh, addressing, which is the kind of social lived materiality uh, of social relations and the necessity for the total modification of existing material relations, which Feuerbach had no commentary on. And which, if I could just jump in very quickly, is one of Moses Hess's uh, interventions, right? Bringing in not 
from the realm of the gods down to human beings. But by the 1830s and 1840s, bringing what was called the social question, which of course is the immediate results, the social results of uh, industrialization, industrial capitalism arising, bringing that social question into the conception of communism and understanding that in relation to the evolution of society, the evolution of politics towards something beyond. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think what, what Engels realizes later in life when he's reflecting back on their critique of Feuerbach, he says something super interesting in this text where he basically says, Hegel kind of completed um, the dialectical conception of nature and of phenomenology, like there was a kind of um, something within German idealism had reached an end point with Hegel. But the problem was, is that the social um, class struggle was such that only the working class could bring to completion the truths of the Hegelian system. And that, I think, is the kind of trappings of what you just mentioned a moment ago under the rubric of worldview Marxism. Right. which is the notion that um, socialism must also entail the comprehensive development of a proletarian worldview if the proletariat is going to be in a position strategically for its own emancipation. That emancipation also has a stake in the Enlightenment. It also has an intellectual claim. And like Victor Serge has this quote about the Bolsheviks, which is that the Bolsheviks were only successful because they were capable of achieving within intellectual life of bourgeoisie the highest point. And mm -hmm. then from that, sublating it, right? Like, so that's kind of Engels' idea, which is that it's not this idea that the proletariat must be autodidacts outside of bourgeois institutions, but that they must rival them in a certain way, right? That there must, mm. there must be an intellectual uh, struggle. And this is, this is incumbent upon socialists to, to coordinate and to organize. And I think that's kind of one of the kind of uh, fundamental points of angles. Now on dialectics of nature, I mean, it's, it's a, um, it's an interesting text. Part of what angles was was interested in was providing a kind of comprehensive history of science up to the present, mm. for which most commentators, even scientists, consider what he did there in the first opening parts of the text to be very sound. And the second part is split into a commentary on physics, much of which is dated. Einstein, Bernstein gave the text to Einstein famously, and Einstein said this is has some merit, but it is dated. But where Engels was most prophetic was in the field of biology. And that's why you see folks like the Monthly Review, John Bellamy Foster, and a lot of contemporary Marxists still grappling with the dialectics of nature. And what Engels is basically trying to do there is put forward this kind of three law uh, application to the natural sciences of dialectics, um, you know, this kind of... Um, transformation of quantitative change into qualitative, the negation of the negation, um, the uh, law of the struggle of opposites. So he's trying to identify these three principles of dialectical materialism across all fields of human knowledge, okay? Not just housed within uh, political economy and social life. And so the question I think becomes, 
a kind of ethical one because we know what happened under Stalin mm-hmm. <laughs> when worldview Marxism right, is concretized as a state project. Mm-hmm. And the question there was one of censorship of, of scientific knowledge. I mean, look, you know, for all of the complexity, I'm sure you guys have done work on cultural revolution in China mm-hmm. on your program. I mean, you know, when you are saying that, um, uh, the law of relativity is bourgeois, right? Mm-hmm. You see the limits of mm-hmm. of Marxism as a worldview project. I think, though, that we must take this with grain of salt, apropos Engels and his culpability in that, precisely because I mean, one of Engels' last last comments to international socialists at a conflict, his last speech, as you saw in the Hunt biography was this notion of like freedom of opinion and kind of um, free exchange of ideas. I mean, it's, it's, it's always a kind of non-dogmatic type of thinker, mm-hmm. right? On the one hand. On the other hand, um, he's an incredibly experimental thinker, right? I mean, he's so voracious. I mean, we saw in the Hunt biography, just to give you an example of how voracious he was as a scholar, he wrote like a whole book on the history of Ireland, when he went on vaca- <laughs> when he went on vacation there, he wrote he wrote an anonymous um, text on military theory, published it anonymously, and then people thought that some German general had written it anonymous- anonymously. There was so much advanced military theory and knowledge of uh, the ins and outs of the Prussian military. So, so how do you do that when you're doing that at night, moonlighting effectively right. from your managerial job? This is this is a kind of testament as to the kind of spirit of this man, of of his, <laughs> and not to mention the fact that he's, and this is kind of a silly point, but I think bears mentioning, the guy drank every day. He drank every day. He smoked every day. He was often up till two, three, four, five in the morning. You know, some of his best work was done drinking lager in uh, the storage room of one of the um, cotton factories at his little desk overlooking the uh, the backyard of an alehouse. I know Marx, Marx told somebody that Engels could write, drunk or sober, the result will always be good. <laughs> yeah. the It's incredible because, um, as you said, extremely voracious, extremely disciplined, you know, for all that he is uh, very much a raconteur, uh, very much a party boy, uh, very much prone to um, fits of drunkenness and carousing. Um, he's also very, very diligent. And it's not for nothing that he was called the general, jokingly, within the Marx family, because he was a very upright type character due to his Prussian Calvinist upbringing. And I think uh, a severe and incredible self-determination and will um, to get done to, to live his best life, very much a Victorian figure in that sense. You know, the, the Victorian period in, in England is really the, the perfect, the only real place you could imagine a character like this, somebody who has access to um, the actual experimenters and theorists of uh, the scientific revolution, uh, who has access to the cotton mills, who has access to his um, Irish proletarian life partner who ends up many nights taking him slumming um, in the mean sides of Manchester, England, uh, and him discovering, as you said, the Irish struggle, and him using that not just to write a history and an analysis of Ireland, but also ultimately to start penning what I think Engels is one of the things he's most famous for, which is the anti-colonial struggle, which 
in some senses is and I you could probably include Russia in here as well and so is the greatest sort of um, like patrimony of of Marxism Engelism is the fact that um, the anti-colonial struggles were so imbued uh, with this Marxist Leninist theory that uh, you know his encounters with Ireland and Marx's writings on um, on India and South America were essential for it. Yeah, and I think as a biographical point, Hunt tries to argue that it was his exposure to Mary Burns and her proletarian lifestyle and kind of comrades and family and friends that gave him a feel for the, I don't know, the rawness of it. But also Engels lived with um, working class communities. And one of the things we should also note in, ever since his, frankly, anthropological work on the condition of the working class in England he was basically a fellow traveler of what's called the Chartist movement. And the mm -hmm. Chartist movement at the early time was kind of the leading socialist movement across Europe at the time. And Engels was learning all of the negative lessons of their failures. But he's the kind of guy who throws himself directly into the line of fire. We know, we learned from the Hunt biography that in 1848, Engels literally was the one of the not the only, but one of the generals of the barricades of the work of the workers when they were taking on the Prussian state authorities. And there is a, a nice story about um, how he led, I think, two open field uh, confrontations, gun battles. And um, one of them, apparently his father, which again, we remember his father as this conservative figure. Yeah, uh, mill owner. Happened upon and to see it's a because remember a young angles conscripted to be a gunman for the Prussian military and then now here he is with the workers fighting them <laughs> he was an incredible black sheep within his family um, although of course when he goes and gives up after the failure of the 1848 uh, revolutionary wave uh, ends up back in the family mill and somewhat reconciles uh, with his family. But one of the maybe interesting things I picked up uh, on in this book it regards the, the 1840s uh, and that period before those revolutions pop off where the conception of communism, which um, when Engels takes to communism and when he meets Marx is, as you say, like a religious conversion, but one that they try to create a theoretical and political backbone for. But one of Engels' first ideas to go to the local capitalists of the um, small West German town that he grew up in and uh, give them uh, a lecture about why communism is good. And he goes around uh, this part of Prussia in the West and he's trying to do public um, public meetings with a bunch of like literal like top hatted bourgeoisie. And it's interesting because it seems like he that while they don't like the ideas, they're not considered particularly dangerous. And it's only when the social question turns into social revolution, of course, that these bourgeoisie change their mind from this being some manner of crankery this being something that must be ultimately suppressed. So why I think that's interesting is there's kind of an analog, I think, to this today with Marxism, uh, Engelsism, uh, which is that for as long as it stays within the academy, 
for as long as it is a dry academic discipline, uh, it's a historical method, it's a philosophical conception, right? Then it can get play in many publications. Uh, my co-host Andy of the Antifada was published to the New York Times talking about uh, Russian cos cosmism, I think that's what it's called, uh, in the Bolshevik uh, Revolution. But as soon as, of course, it becomes real, as soon as 1917 especially happens, when 1918 happens in the United States, which is the Seattle general strike, the Seattle essentially what what is in the process of maybe becoming the Seattle uh, commune happens. Of course, this is when the American bourgeoisie and ruling class all of a sudden realize there's something scary about this. So it's really like, um, I think an interesting analog, and I think we see this happen over and over again. And maybe we're seeing shades of that now, uh, where Marxism or communism as like a dry abstraction is acceptable to ruling class opinion, but then all of a sudden gets really, really scary really fast for them. Which is why Engels and Marx ultimately, of course, give up after 1848 on the bourgeoisie as the bearers of potential, um, at least political progress. As, 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 as having to um, enter into a kind of polemic with both existing intellectual life, culture, etc., while at the same time um, clarifying. Because again, I think that the the fact of the matter is, is that by the time of when Engels becomes after the after the publication of Capital, let's say, I think at that point, what Engels provides is the template that subsequent Marxist thinkers will adopt, which is to be able to funnel a interpretation through a Marxist lens. Let's say so. For example, when he reads this this. Uh, Lewis Morgan, anthropologist, writes this book called Ancient Society. And yeah. he's like, oh, my God, this this actually provides a completely new conception for how to think the historical genealogy of the family structure and kinship. Right. And how does this have a bearing on the socialist struggle? So he pens the origins of the family, which, as you mentioned, I think at the beginning became one of the first socialist feminist texts. Um, in existence. But he's doing that because he has a Marxist methodology, which he's able to apply. The same goes with dialectics of nature. He's saying, okay, well, contemporary science is at this certain point. What is the Marxist stake on this, right? Or in his text on the peasant war in Germany, he's also responding to a conception of imminent religiosity and the hangover of religious uh, messianism after the French Revolution. So he, but he's he's doing that from a Marxist. So in that sense, he is the first Marxist intellectual, I think, because one of the things we know is that Marx was so um, singularly obsessed with completing almost to a point of per maniacal perfection capital mm -hmm. that he didn't really pursue these projects. But somebody like Engels did, and I think that that is a kind of way of thinking about what, I guess Engels shows us what it means to be a Marxist thinker in some sense. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? He does that, but then he also does, uh, and I, I don't know if what this, what we define this as, but something like he gives us the trappings for the most, a form of militancy, which is the most engaged form of militancy um, in the working class struggle. 
and he provides a kind of um, uh, a model for that, which I think is is very like obviously courageous. Um, he's not somebody who's going to shy away from this notion. It's interesting that Hunt makes this point about what would Engels think about Lenin's vanguard theory, for example. Because mm-hmm. Hunt tries to argue that, well, and I think Hunt is kind of wrong about this. Well, Lenin's notion of the vanguard leadership theory is kind of a regression to pre-Marxist Blanquism because it's based on the theory of elitism. And then Hunt tries to say, oh, well, Engels was stridently opposed to elitism, which is why Engels was this critic of elite socialists. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very interesting point because you got to keep in mind elite socialists, starting from with LaSalle, this very famous charismatic elite socialist thinker and uh, politician, Ferdinand LaSalle, he applied, as a little anecdote I'll share, he applied to join Marx's and Engels's early organization, the Communist League. And Marx and Engels supported his application. This was the secretive uh, group that we talked about before, which was basically um, kind of all of the leading socialist intellectuals at the time were gathered under there. And anyways, LaSalle was denied, but Marx and Engels wanted him to join because Marx and Engels, I think, had always this sense that you have to keep these crazy socialist people close at bay in some yeah. sense. I don't know if that makes sense. And the same goes with Engels in his relationship with Bernstein, Kautsky, Babel, all of the leading figures that would take on the mantle following Even his death. Various character like Thomas Aveling, right, who comes off as a great, great is it Edward Aveling? Uh, Edward, yes. This Ed, very, Edward very, yes. and I think this is a blemish on Engels' record. I think he, he, so this is a figure that is uh, deeply problematic, kind of, um, I don't know, sort of cocksure. Um, opportunist, it seems Opportunist. Like. Terrible with money, terrible with people. Clearly, uh, I think it was one of Marx's daughters liked him. Is that the story? And- yeah, it was, uh, was it um, Laura, Laura Marx, I believe? Um, they had a relationship. And so the, what Hunt argues in this is that Engels is so invested because obviously he's got the, as close a friendship with, with Marx as anybody probably has ever had through history. It's a bromance for all time. Uh, he takes upon himself to do, to continue what he had done, uh, during Marx's life, which is to provide for the family of Marx, not just financially, but also as an uncle type figure. And so Hun argues that Aveling is this notorious and nefarious character who at one point it's implied in the book that the whole course of, uh, British socialist history may have gone differently had this complete and utter scumbag not been the sort of anointed political figure that Engels makes him um, for the reason of his um, relationship with Marx's daughters, who he doted over and who he took care of. He gave Aveling a pass for this, I think, erroneously. And the question, I guess, is like, as Aveling goes and bumbles his way through and tries to fight off the more Methodist than Marxist strain of the of what becomes the UK Labour Party, this sort of... Um, sort of moralistic and, and puritanical uh, business unionist sort of socialism. Um, if it had not been Aveling, things might have gone differently. It's an interesting uh, counterfactual. Yeah, I mean, you could almost make the argument that there's a sort of balancing act that Engels and Marx provided to one another, right? Yeah. That like, in fact, 
Sure. Um, it does not demote Engels's personal genius to say that he was second fiddle to Marx and that he was a popularizer of Marxism. I think that he would be fine with that. And um, because his popularizations were <laughs> extremely sound and, and, and um, influential and so on and so forth. So I don't think that that's like a dig per se, but I do think that without Marx's presence, Engels himself does become a bit of an opportunist at times. It does seem that way. He softens a lot of his views. He begins to um, revise, let's say, in various different ways. Um, and he becomes much more of like the bullying, uh, inspiring, but also bullying, sharp-elbowed uh, political operator that um, when he was spending so much time working on theory with Marx or working in the factory, he didn't have time for that shit. One of the things that he does as soon as he retires is he starts throwing, firing off salvos from his, from his new house in London uh, at socialists all over the continent in these serious interventions that you spoke about earlier. Um, I, I think, you know, we're, uh, uh, we're getting towards the end now, but I got a couple of hot questions, I think. That I want both of us to to touch, no matter how they might burn us. Um, the first one is because we talked so much about um, Engels as in his relationship to the scientific revolution or and Marxism in general as um, scientific socialism. Right. One of the things that's really really clear in this uh, Hunt book, and I, I I encourage people to pick this book up. I think it's extremely entertaining. It's got a lot of great um, anecdotes in it, but it's got it's got a, a I think an interesting, very interesting take on this on the life and times of this man. But one of the kind of throwaway lines in this is that Engels is coming up at a time and the place at the center of world capitalism, and also at the center of uh, the scientific revolution, where science is moving from a practical matter, something done by master craftspeople in shops or tinkering lawyers or bourgeoisie or whatever into something that's becoming much more standardized. And obviously through the 19th century, the amount of scientific discoveries in all sorts of realms, you know, we're still indebted to that time in chemistry and physics uh, in material science uh, in so many different categories. Engels is sort of at the center of that and his work and Marx's work too, uh, to an extent, right, are kind of um, imbued with what the author calls the distinctive faculty of that age, right, of the hard sciences. And so the Marxist theory, the Engels theory, is always trying to rise to the level of what the rest of science is bringing to society, right, at this moment, this practical sort of um, working through of the laws of motion of, say, chemists, uh, chemicals, right? They're trying to do the same. So I wonder, you know, if Marx and Engels are imbued with this sort of hard science revolution um, sort of uh, sense, uh, sensibility, right? And, and, and facility. What do we have like that today? Like, what is our revolutionary theory imbued with? Is it imbued in like the digital revolution? Is if they were able to look to... Um, I don't know, Charles Darwin as the exemplars of what their project might mean to what do we look to, to like the networked irrationality of the internet or like, you know, it, I, I feel like in some sense there's been a real retrogression of thought or, and the, the hiving away of a lot of what had been popular discoveries into this academic sphere 
where they don't reach us. And it's difficult, I feel like, for people like us. I'm an autodidact, and I think you are too, by and large. People like us, to be as promiscuous as Marx, to be as promiscuous as Engels, to be even as promiscuous as somebody like Bukharin was later on, or or one of these great seminal Marxists from the 20th century. So what do you think about that? What is the distinctive faculty of our age? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, Foucault has this distinction that it kind of historicizes, right? Between the kind of collapse of what he calls the general intellectual and the rise of the specific intellectual. And clearly Engels and Marx are operating at a time in which the kind of academic field of knowledge and power and discourse of um, how science was able to exert certain um, influences within social life is, I think, fundamentally different than it is in today's time. Insofar as today, um, anyone who would make a kind of um, assumption of their own authority as one of a profound generalist would kind of either come off as a crank or kind of like a Dianetics guy. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Right? So I, I think this takes us back to the question of worldview Marxism and like what we mean by that. I think that it's kind of, just to be simple about it, a question of ambition, right? It's like, on the one hand, Marxism calls us to make an account like Engels did, using the Marxist point of view, its orientation, on a number of social and intellectual phenomena that we can kind of penetrate through with the tools of historical materialism and even dialectical materialism, although we can discuss whether Engels' notions of dialectical materialism need to be rethought in the wake of Althusser, of Jean-Paul Sartre, of Lukács, and other Marxist philosophers, because I would argue that in the innovation of Marxist methodology is actually driven by philosophy. Okay. Mm. That doesn't mean that every Marxist must be a philosopher, but it does mean that philosophy asks questions that push Marxism to confront the knowledge of its time in the best way possible. I think that also means that Marxism doesn't need to be uh, pretending to have a stake on all fields of human knowledge as the generalist intellectual um, did. Because we now know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Engels and Marx were doing that in part because it was necessary for any intellectual uh, to, to derive this kind of conception also for the transmission of their discourse to make sense. It had to be presented in a totalized way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is actually why uh, uh, one of the things that Lukács says about the time in which Marx and Engels lived, that's different than our own time, is that uh, bourgeois intellectuals had, and you see this even in like novelists, like Flaubert or Balzac, uh, they, they could capture something about the totality of the culture in which capitalism existed. And one of the things we see in contemporary Marxist thought coming like from thinkers like Frederick Jameson, for example, mm. is that the postmodern condition is one of the loss of totality, right? That intellectuals actually can no longer, uh, and maybe no longer should, uh, make mm. us make a, um, assumptions on capturing something about the totality. But I think that Engels and Marx do come from that 
period. And I think this is why you do need a bit of Foucault as a kind of way of understanding that historical period as having undergone a shift and a change. We're no longer in that same intellectual milieu and this constellation of knowledge and discourse and power is different now. Mm. And that's fine. Uh, but what I think, though, there still is a legacy that's important. And I think that that legacy is an intellectual one, uh, basically, because I do think that Marxism has strength as a project that can say something about the feminist struggle, can say, can say something and make a claim about the anti-colonial struggle, can intervene into conversations regarding human subjectivity, um, advances in neuroscience. So I'm not confident to say that there is kind of one field of human knowledge or ingenuity that Marxism must latch on, must latch on to. I think it's a little more, mod our, our position should be a little more modest than that. But at the same time, I think Engels is somebody that inspires us to be autodidacts. He's somebody that himself had no firm place at an institution of higher learning. But now mm. the contemporary institutions of higher learning have him in the syllabus all over the place. Right. So there's no limitation. That, that's another thing that he shows us. There's no, there should be no limitation about our investigations. You know, um, our investigations should be as broad as Engels as were. But that broadness doesn't mean that we should pretend that we're, because this would be charlatanism, to pretend <laughs> that Marxism is a superior scientific discourse in all of these places where it's not. <laughs> let's, right, right, right. let's not, let's not do that. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, uh, we also, I think, need to be um, extremely skeptical, and I nodded towards this earlier, um, towards not the method of analysis uh, and, and understanding, but the various different political positions taken over the course of these two gentlemen's lifetimes. You know, I have a question. It's a trolley question here because we never get to the end of Edward Bernstein's story. But uh, I have a question here. Was Edward Bernstein a better Marxist than Lenin? Because uh, Bernstein, a, a bigger Engelsian, thank you, uh, than Lenin. Because within his broad-minded kind of um, promiscuous searchings for hope uh, and possibility in bourgeois society by the 1890s, and certainly, you know, he didn't live long enough to see the great crises that came right around the corner. But uh, seeing a sort of tempering of uh, the accumulation process and seeing the way in which the SPD was making great gains in the realm of democracy, seeing the ways, as he said, the famous atheist um, Engels said, uh, started to make analogy by the 1890s of the spread of socialism to the spread of early Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, understanding it as a sort of like permeative process that once it begins, there may be setbacks, but that it was ultimately inevitable. Um, you know, Bernstein kind of takes this with his revision in a direction that Engels is going. So the whole thing, and you could comment on that, but the whole thing kind of, I think, should give us pause about the actual ins and outs and concrete political scenarios that exist without, I think, jettisoning, jettisoning the essential core of the theory and the outlines of the political project. The way to get there, I think, is you know, very much as we see in this book and, and through his life, very much a um, contingent contingent factor. Well, I, I would, I think I have a pretty clean answer to this, which is 
Marxism died under its institutionalization in the SPD, and it was reborn, not to sound like too religious metaphor there, under under um, what the Bolsheviks were capable of doing to Marxism. And we don't have the time to get into that claim, but I'm still going to, I'm still going to make it. Um, I think that the, so, so it's two different, it's like night and day. Right. And I think that the reason for that is the historical experience of Germany from 1848 up to the early 1890s, you know, the founding of the second international, that's a long, um, iteration and series of struggles that had, um, agitated and reached a point for which um, I would compare it to Bolshevism. The way that they incorporate, Lenin incorporates the Engelsian orientation, which, by the way, he deeply incorporates it um, through Plekhanov primarily. Mm -hmm. And Plekhanov, of course, I think Hunt is right about this. Hunt claims that Engels is not the founder of dialectical materialism in a systematic way, but it's really Plekhanov. And from there... He's deeply indebted to Engels' Dialectics of Nature as the foundation of that. And without that, I think you wouldn't have the development of Bolshevik Marxism, which itself is more true, I would say, to Engels as the theorist intellectual of Marxism, whereas the Bernsteinian line is really, I think, idiosyncratic, and I think um, tied to changing conditions of angles without marks angles mm. at a point at which he is witnessing i mean angles we didn't mention this he's fluent in like a dozen languages yeah and it's um, incredible he's 74 years old and he's learning romanian so he can keep yeah. up with the social struggle there exactly so he he's receiving dispatches every day um in london which was he was living in london and um he had this villa where it was like every international socialist would be sending correspondence and he'd read, he'd wake up and read, you know, however many and read all of the, the various newspapers and he would respond in the language in which he received them and so on. So um, he became the Pope of Marxism before Kautsky. And of course mm-hmm. he, he sanctified Kautsky in that transition as well. So maybe the, the more interesting question would be to compare not so much Bernstein, who's a, more of an aberration, but it really would be the Kautsky thing, because I think there is a real pass-off. Also consider that Bernstein and Kautsky both claim that their Marxism was through Engels, that they discovered it. So then the question is, um, it's, it's, hard, it's a tough question you're asking there. It's definitely a trolley one. But um, I'm going to say that um, we see in Bolshevism, we see Engelsianism, implemented in ways which probably were more robustly consistent with Marx and Engels' vision than we see with Bernstein and Kautsky, definitely. Um, I would say that. Um, I just want to say one little thing, too, which I really loved in the Hunt biography, just to give your listeners a sense of Marx and Engels' relationship. Yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> These are the great Easter eggs. Yeah. Just, the book. We're making it seem like... Uh, you know, there's a disposition on great intellectual, and it is that. But no, but it's 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 it's, it's, it's healthy. Thing. A little hagiography is healthy here and there. One of the ones before you jump in with one of your uh, favorite ones. Mine is um, that Engels had um, such diligence and such determination, and was such a busybody 
that uh, when the SPD, who he's in communication with, uh, was trying to work on legislation to build the Keel Canal, uh, Engels fires off a memo that says the Keel Canal should be nine meters deeper. <laughs> it's like micromanaging the the engineering of this canal because he studied, you know, somewhere along the way he studied hydrology and he thought that they were doing the canal wrong. <laughs> it's like micromanaging the, the engineering of this canal because he studied, you know, somewhere along the way he studied hydrology. Right, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. No, he really is an uncle. You know that crazy uncle you have that like knows everything, right? That's that's Angles. Like if mm-hmm. if Angles was alive in the computer age, you know he he would know like how to like take apart a computer and rebuild it. He's he's one of those yeah. guys, you know. Yeah. Um so there's this story of like the morning routine of Marx and Engels where when they lived in London, they lived two blocks away from each other. So they'd wake up in the morning and they'd read the newspaper. They'd have their like coffee and breakfast or whatever. And then they would get together at like 10 a.m. I think it was Laura Marx wrote a reflection on it where they would gather in Marx's office and they would pace up and down, up and down, and they would walk with this huge thump and they so because they were walking very fast and she says why are they walking so fast and what it was was that these this bromance was so deep that they didn't even have verbal conversations they were reflecting in like some deep thoughts reflective philosophical whatever on their own and then at the end they would spill everything that they had just been thinking about for the next 10 or 15 minutes to one another that's how their thing, and then they would go on a walk. They went on a daily walk as well. Uh, but I just love that idea of two friends that are so comfortable with each other that they pace around without talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such an awesome image. Yeah. And then they'd often like um, just be laughing riotously at like 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, drinking beers upstairs. You know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot said. I'm not really all that interested in the charges of hypocrisy. Um, that people throw at angles for being a bourgeois and yet also being a, a communist revolutionary. I think that angles, um, you know, certainly walk the walk, let's say. I think maybe if I was most, um, psychologically charitable, I would say, um, and I, I, I think this is true having read the Hunt biography. I think that all of the qualities that we see in Frederick Engels in his life, um, his broad mindedness, his, um, his gentleness, but also his determination and his, and his vigor, um, his promiscuousness in and, in, in and out of the bedroom, uh, his love of life, um, his ability to take in like vast swaths of human knowledge and synthesize them, but also his ability to go down to a street corner and, you know, give a, a, a fiery speech or intervene at a rally. I think these were the qualities that he held. Uh, and the lifestyle that he had was one that he truly wished to see generalized. I think that he, when Marx is talking about being a farmer in the morning and a critic in the evening, I think how Engels actually imagined socialism and the struggle for socialism was this process of self-becoming, of self-discovery, of knowledge, but also of like earthy living at the same time. And so I think that his ultimately his vision of what the world should be would just be several billions Engels's 
maybe not all of them on the same path. In fact, probably them on radically different paths, right? But that he wanted the freedom that he had to be uh, a whole world in- into himself. Yeah, really brilliant. Really well said. And I mean, there's a couple nuggets that are even gossipy that we didn't mention, but uh, maybe we can mention them in the after conversation. But <laughs> Let's get into that. Let's get into that. We'll do another 20, 25 minutes on the back end. If you're not a patron yet, I don't know why you would you wouldn't be at this point, but patreon.com slash the Antifada. I think maybe we'll talk a little new stuff and we'll finish with some fun anecdotes. So we'll see you folks on the other side. But the men stood fast with their guns on their shoulders, not knowing what to do with the contradicting orders. The general said he would do his own duty, but he extended no further. The men could go as they pleased. But not a man moved, their eyes gazed straight ahead Till one by one they stepped back and not a word was said And the old general was left with his own words echoing in his head He then prepared to fight, he said I have seen the others and I have discovered Alright, so one of the big ones, and I want your thoughts on this, is that we learn And I actually didn't know this, I don't know if you did um, So Mark's, um, the Mark's family had a live-in um, housemaid Helena Delmut and Marks up allegedly, according to the Hunt perspective, impregnated this woman. And Angles intervened to uh, prevent the crisis of the smearing of Marx's good name at the moment at which Marx's name had to be sacrosanct for the cause of international socialism. 